It's Wednesday, November 4th, and we're still waiting to see who the leader of the free world will be. What we're not waiting for is our Sermon Recap Podcast. This week, Josh and Matthew ask me, Avery, questions about Genesis 5-6 through 6, and the sermon I preached Sunday on this passage. We talk about issues such as God's justice and wisdom despite the flood and how sin influences a church culture. We hope that this podcast will be helpful to you as you continue along with us in Genesis. Now, on to the podcast. Welcome back to the Trace Crossing podcast. We're here in the podcast studio. We finally landed on what that actually is. It's Avery's office um, and a fine office slash podcast studio it is. So we're back and uh, we're coming off of last week, which was all about, I don't know, guys, remind me. (laughs) It's been a week. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. What, whatever you preached, passage? whatever oh, pre- whatever oh, Cain, you preached Cain on, it was, Abel, yeah. it was Cain and Abel. Yeah. That's right. So we settled the debate regarding who Cain's wife uh, was. Anyway, so this week uh, we're moving forward. Pastor Avery preached on Genesis 5-1 through 6-8. Uh, the majority of that obviously is a genealogy, but Pastor Avery, you uh, really zeroed in on Chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, which is the... Can you blame me? I do not blame you uh, whatsoever. Uh, But you zeroed in on 1 through 8 of chapter 6, which is the introduction to the Noah epic. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you said, you certainly couldn't be blamed for that. But you can be blamed, as we all can, for the sin that we have... Uh-huh. which was the focus of your sermon. And so my first question uh, that I just want to sort of lob up to you is, um, you know, walk us through your process of landing on w- where you landed. Uh, I was really challenged and um, built up by your sermon and and uh, was, you know, really caused to reflect the ways in which sin, you know, can have a grip on me and uh, how I need to combat that. That's obviously a lot of what we encounter in Genesis 1 through 11, the origins of sin and, um, you know, how it still has an effect on us today. But why don't don't you walk us through your process of landing where you did and, um, you know, just kind of invite us into your week last week and how the Lord worked in your heart through this text. Yeah, so when I was preparing for this passage, um, when you look through all of it, obviously... There are a lot of interpretive challenges, and there's a lot of um, different angles, which I, I said at the beginning of the sermon. And so I knew going into it that I would need to pare down what I say um, because I can't, you can't fully exegete a chapter and another eight verses um, effectively. And so I wanted to narrow in on what I believed. Um, was the primary uh, problem or the primary um, intent in writing uh, that passage. So verse 5 made such an excellent summary statement by saying that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that, uh, the ev- that every intention of his heart was only evil continually. 
And it reminded me of how when you're speaking about sin um, in a biblical theology kind of way, um, in even a systematic theology kind of way, when you're talking about how it affects every person, um, it's sin is often described as universal um, in its effects in affecting everybody, and um, and it depends on you know your particular brand of Christianity at this point. But you know you could say like uh, corrupting if you believe that uh, someone is inclined to sin, all the way to someone is like totally depraved for the most you know reformed uh, camp. Um, but anyway, that basically boils down to the fact that sin. Uh, runs wide in all of us, and that sin runs uh, deep in each of us. And so um, that kind of became the focus. And then, actually, at that point, um, I was trying to understand uh, the purpose of the genealogies. And when you when you look at them, it, it actually kind of lends uh, support to this idea that uh, you've moved in chapter four from, you know, these isolated incidents of sin to um, a corrupt mankind, um, which is the opposite of what God intended mankind to be. So um, that kind of, uh, even even the genealogy kind of lent itself to that main point. Um, and so um, as confusing as the passage may have been uh, in some of its more um, complicated aspects, the overall message was actually super, super clear. So it kind of, it, it was actually pretty easy at that point once that uh, main message became clear. So, Yeah. Yeah, I thought you did a good job of zeroing in on that for us. And um, it was also really instructive, the way that you dealt with the genealogies, uh, even pointing to the genealogies that we find in the Gospels to remind us how, even though uh, you know, based on your acknowledgement, they can be kind of boring to read at the same time. They're no less Scripture than any other part of Scripture. Like Genesis 5 is no less God's Word than John 3.16. Yeah, I mean, they're a page-turner, but only in the sense that you want to turn the page and stop reading them. But Now, that was a dad joke. <laughs> yeah, no, that's you, have, what, uh, you have to keep turning the pages to get through it. <laughs> to get, to get through it. <laughs> that's what, uh, yeah, everyone, um, everyone said when I became a dad that, uh, you know, like, um, they're like, wow, you know, now you can start doing dad jokes. It's like, what you don't understand is like, I was born a dad and I was just waiting to have a child. Like I've been like this my whole life. So you, you are pretty much a middle-aged man in a young man's body. Yeah, that's yeah. True. I see that. If not an old man in a young man's body. Yeah, I feel that too. So anyway, that's, that's great. So one question that I, you know, just wanted to ask, and um, I realize that this is a little bit nuanced, and, and so maybe we can, we can all kind of chime in here. When I think about um, the part of Genesis 6 that says every intention of every heart was on evil all the time, mm -hmm. do you think that that is a description of one who is not... Um, you know, in God's family or has found favor with God, um, not a Christian? Is that, is that a description of anybody who's not in the Lord, or is that more of a particular description of the types of humans that we encounter in this particular epic? And I ask that because uh, while the judgment for all of those who are not in Christ is going to be the same, regardless of the level of heinousness of your sin— there are some sins we would acknowledge that are more heinous than others. There are some people, um, mm -hmm. you know, that we would say, 
have committed more evil than others, you know, and probably have more evil intentions than others, even though they are, you know, equally uh, sinful in the eyes of the Lord and are going to face equal judgment for that sin. So mm-hmm. do you understand kind of how I'm, how I'm asking that? Like, mm-hmm. is that a description of, of sinful people in general um, that we could just apply to anybody who's not in Christ, or is it more of a description of, of those particular people? Yeah, and it um, it kind of depends. The um, I think the way that the writer is describing that is meant to be emphatic, um, and I think that um, a person uh, in who's not in Christ is um, how should I put it. Uh, he is continually inclined towards sin and is, um, you know, has a glimmer of sin in, in all of their uh, faults and intentions and without the intervention of the Holy Spirit is unable to um, repent and believe in Christ for salvation. Um, and I think the rest of Scripture, like in the New Testament, uh, makes that clear. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about like uh, Romans 3. Um, and uh, those kind of passages. But um, there is a way that this passage applies more specifically and especially to these people, um, because through this emphasis, I think the writer is communicating that um, the state of this world, uh, as God judged it, was especially bad. Um, And so, yes, there's a level where this is true of each of us, and yes, there's a level where whatever was going on at this time was worse than probably worse than how things are at this point. So, yeah, there's an emphasis on the extreme here. Right. I mean, the wickedness of man was great. And uh, you, you brought out these, these terms in the sermon, but yeah, the, uh, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, Mm -hmm. you know? So yeah, I, I, I agree. I think that we, we probably can take this and apply it, but for the purposes of the narrative itself, it's more just descriptive of of how mankind had, mm-hmm. how far they had fallen, you know, mm-hmm. from their original place. Yeah, and if there were not um, similar descriptions of people in the New Testament, I don't think we would be able to say that this applies to, you know, people today in the same right. way. Um, but it does exist, so that that helps us a little bit in that way. Um, well, and I, th- and I think you, you touched on this, too, in your sermon. You know, it helps us. It certainly would have helped the original readers, uh, Moses' original, you know, uh, recipients of this, of this book. It would have helped them to understand the severity of the judgment, mm-hmm. you know, of, of the flood. Of the flood and, um, you know, I, a modern sort of uh, application would be, you know, we look back at, at you know the, the world in the 1940s, and none of us would bat an eye uh, at the Lord coming down and and causing a flood to wash over Nazi Germany and mm-hmm. you know all that it represented and all of the places that it had had conquered. We would not think twice about that being righteous, mm-hmm. you know. And so I think it does help us to understand. Oh, okay. So God is righteous in His judgment, and we can celebrate the fact that you know. Um, he he wants to do away with evil, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, which of course leads to, um, I think my my final question, which is, and again, I think you you dealt with this very well in the sermon, but maybe you can just speak a little bit to sort of what your journey was in 
thinking about how God would bring about this destruction and this judgment, though he knew it wasn't going to completely eradicate sin. Maybe talk a little bit uh, then, uh, you know, a little bit more about sort of what the purpose of it was then and how we can learn from it. Yeah. Um, well, right before we recorded, Josh was uh, Josh said that this is going to be a softball day. Um, and so I thought, we'll see. And uh, here we go. Softball um, is actually really hard to play. <laughs> this, this is actually a really easy question, Avery. I don't That's know what, what uh, when he was referring to that, I didn't know he was throwing me a curveball at that point. Oh, come on. So. Just go back <laughs> go back and listen to the podcast where y'all ask me questions about the fall uh, and the origins of Satan. So <laughs> it's just it's just a rise ball. Like, yeah, yeah. It's not right. slow pitch softball. Right. Yeah, it was um yeah, it's like a professional softball. Um okay, so I would say as far as this goes, um, there is a question of is judgment of this kind righteous? And there's a question of was judgment of this kind wise? Um, and the question of is judgment of this kind righteous is, I think, yes. It's not fun to say. We don't like saying it. Um, you know, we live in a culture that is that, that seeks to affirm, which is a good impulse. We want to, you know, affirm people where we can, you know, we want to be supportive and, um, and care about people and be compassionate. Um, at the same time, we don't want to affirm and compassion our brains out. Um, and there is a sense where if the world is set right, that there has to be justice. Like you mentioned, um, you mentioned Nazi Germany is, you know, it's, it's everybody's, you know, favorite moral extreme example, but it's because it works so well. Um, the even the most affirming and compassionate person would say that, like that, that like true compassion towards those who were hurt would be for justice to come down on those um, who did such wretched things. So. Um, in the same way, uh, we can only I can only assume, uh, based on this passage, that this judgment from the Lord was just, and that what happened was especially wicked. And like I said in in uh, the sermon, I think if we were there, um, it would probably shut up our objections to is this fair. So that's the question of is it just. Um, the question of is it wise is a separate one, and this is one that I think we don't have enough. Um, knowledge of those events to make a declaration on uh, the wisdom of the Lord in this, uh, which means that we should probably uh, lean towards knowing that the Lord is wise and, um, you know, giving him the benefit of the doubt. Um, if one can give the benefit of the doubt to the Lord. Uh, that's, a safe, yeah. that's a safe lane to stay in yeah, so. every time. Anyway, since well, I wasn't there, I guess I'll give the Lord. Yeah, a pass. I'll give him a pass, you know. Yeah, but um, but really, uh, there's so if I'm this is so this is speculative. This is not uh, this is not exegesis. So you know, just clear, you know, just a little qualification about that. But um, where where I kind of landed and um, assuming the events of the flood narrative uh, to be an act of wisdom. Uh, would be that uh, by flooding the earth and judging the world apart from, you know, one man and his family, there was something that was accomplished. I don't know exactly what, um, but, you know, perhaps uh, there were some certain manifestations of sin and wickedness that were eliminated by the flood that made uh, the world livable for his creation that would come afterwards. 
um, you know, perhaps uh, this was a, um, a way like to uh, help people understand the consequences of their sin. Maybe, maybe the consequences for sin were not very clear at this time. Maybe um, this was a permanent reminder to humanity that every action has consequences. Um, I really don't know. You know, maybe some of all of this, but you just have to assume that there was some wisdom and purpose in it. Well, and that's what's so difficult about Genesis 1 through 11. It's, it's narrative. It's descriptive. Mm-hmm. We're not given very many explanations. And in some places, we're not even given clues. It's just, hey, this is what happened. Right. You know, yeah. So it, it does make it tough. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, bringing all of these difficult questions always back to the gospel, you know, mm-hmm. always back to the overarching storyline of the scriptures, you know, Jesus came through the line of Noah. Mm-hmm. And so even through this um, devastation and through this sort of purging, God is preserving a righteous line, and he is even now starting to build a people for himself uh, who are going to be a blessing to all nations, you know, as we see when we move into Genesis 12 uh, with Abraham. Um, And so though we, at this point, you know, uh, wonder sometimes why, and we wonder sometimes regarding the wisdom, as you mentioned, we have to come to terms with the fact that we are finite, and, you know, we don't know the mind of God, and one day we'll understand how everything, you know, uh, or or why everything was done in the way that it was done. But for now, at the very least, we do know, as you mentioned, God is wise, and Jesus eventually came and did deal a decisive blow uh, to the wickedness that we find here. Matthew, you have any thoughts, questions for Avery? I want to give Avery an opportunity to, to be a little pastoral here and think about Trace Crossing folks in particular. Um, so as we're thinking about that passage about every intention of the heart being inclined toward evil, um, even though we would say someone who is redeemed in Christ, we, we have been redeemed from that, we still have evil intentions that, that creep into and remain in our hearts. And so... I want to ask you, like, especially within the life of the church, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book Life Together talks all about how once you become disillusioned with your ideal of a perfect church, that it, it actually doesn't exist, you'll finally mm-hmm. be able to live out what the New Testament holds for the church. Mm-hmm. And so I'm thinking about the difference between expecting sin from one another and tolerating sin in one another. And, mm-hmm. and that, that's a really fine line because I feel like community in the church is disrupted on both fronts when we, when we just tolerate sin and let it go. And then also whenever we're just floored by the fact that someone would sin, you know, and we're, right. we just, we can't believe it and we don't deal with it well, we don't handle it well. So maybe, maybe speak right. a little bit to like within the life of, of a faith community, uh, you know, the difference between tolerating and expecting sin in one another. Right. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll try to answer this without working myself into, um, problems or, uh, conundrums or anything or calling anybody out or anything like that. If you do, we'll just delete that part. Well, that's all right. (laughs) We'll just probably delete this whole thing. Uh, but so my, my thoughts about expecting sin are that uh, there ha- for a community of any sort to function, there has to be some 
uh, leeway given to other members of that community to mess up. Like, um, because if there's not, um, then uh, we won't be able to withstand that judgment when it's turned around on ourselves. Right. So, um, so that means that we need to understand uh, that there are some sins that are going to be committed by other people that the Lord is gracious and able to forgive, that he's able to work out in them. And, um, you know, sometimes that means having a, you know, just a private conversation with that person, always in support, like, is there a way I can help you with this? Can I provide accountability? Like, I just noticed that, you know, there's there's those kind of uh, conversations. And, um, and not being surprised so that uh, you demand that the hammer be brought down on another person and that they be um, removed and excluded from your community of faith because they've sinned, because um, that person may have sinned in a particular way that you don't like. Um, that, that kind of thing, I think, um, will undermine a church instead of building it up. That's, um, to me, that is, that may have the appearance of taking sin seriously, um, but it doesn't like take solving sin seriously it only takes punishing sin seriously um and so i think that's a that's an important um delineation at the same time um there are sins that are particularly destructive to a church um that can ruin a community um like gossip obviously comes to mind where you undermine a person in in the church you undermine leadership or you undermine um you know whoever and it's done uh, in such a way that it, it effectively removes people from, from your church. And that is, that's very destructive for a church. Or I think of, um, you know, like uh, unrepentant uh, you know, sexual sin or adultery that can go on in a church. That can be extremely destructive on a church. It can be extremely destructive on the church witness, uh, on its um, involvement in the community of uh, the way that other people view Christians in the church. So... There, there is a um, particular line that must be drawn where sin begins to uh, destroy community of faith, and that's where church discipline enters. Um, and so, yeah, I think, but there, there also has to be a level of um, expectation of sin and a reminder, like, that our role is to solve sin, like, is to help people in sin, not to mm-hmm. condemn them or destroy them for it. So, oh, I love that. It made me think of Ortland's. Uh, That's what I had in mind. Yeah, Yeah, that was really helpful to me. The gospel plus safety plus time. Uh You know, it's it's such a helpful framework that you know we we have this this gospel of grace, but it should create this this safe environment where where people feel like they can confess their sin and repent of their sin. If there isn't this baseline expectation that hey, we expect that you're going to mess up, and I hope that you expect that that I'm going to mess up. Right. In an environment mm-hmm. like that where sin is expected but not tolerated, you like you can change and, right. and you can grow freely. And if I could give one qualification, because I just thought of this, um, when I do say that, you know, uh, situations where sins are destructive to the community of a church are, you know, particularly dangerous and must be dealt with, that doesn't mean that a person cannot be forgiven and restored a community in that fellowship in those situations it just means that uh that like action has to be taken to stop that oh yeah you that's know? that's how we so, deal with it yeah, yeah. and I, I love like the time part of it too like uh-huh. people don't change quickly right we need to be patient with each other and not right. pressure one another you know to definitely to change immediately yeah i had a good. former pastor he used to say when talking about matthew 18 and the prescription that jesus gave us for discipline it's not as if 
uh, because you know, uh, if, if you're not familiar, if you're listening with that prescription, the idea is that if if someone sins against you or you see somebody in sin, you go to them one on one. If they're unrepentant, you take some witnesses. If they're you know if they remain unrepentant, you take them before the church. And this former pastor used to say about that, it's not as if that's describing a kind of process that uh, you know only contains three conversations. Right. Where you go to them once, you know, they don't Look, repent. Check. Yeah, check that box off. And then, all right, the very next time I talk to them, there's going to be more people here. Uh, they don't repent, check. All right, the next time we're talking about this, it's in front of the whole church. And so the principle he laid out, and I thought this was really wise when we're looking at Matthew 18, is um, as few people as possible for as long as possible. That's helpful. Because the mm-hmm. the end of the church discipline process, which again... Um, should be hopefully happening in our church on a weekly basis as we are all humbly and graciously <laughs> calling one another out and you know living lives of repentance. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean the, the, the process for that uh, should be as few people as possible for as long as possible uh, to the end that that person repents and is restored. It's easy to forget that the the sort of chief end of church discipline is restoration. Right. Uh, so mm-hmm. I think that Avery, you spoke to that beautifully, and that's a great word. Yeah, yeah, and I, I would say if your if your goal in uh, church discipline is not restoration, it's probably it's probably coming from a sinful heart where right. you want someone to be destroyed, and that is sinful. So. Sure. Yeah, expecting sin is. Uh, really important because we are all going to continue struggling with sin on this side of heaven. Right. Um, while at the same time, not tolerating sin means that we also expect repentance. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. so we expect one another to sin, uh, but because we are all in Christ, we expect repentance. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Right. Mm-hmm. That's right. those two things are important. Yeah. If you find somebody who doesn't even recognize that they are prone to wander, that they don't even feel that and want to come back from that and repent, then you have a problem, you know? And so, yeah, that's a good word, brother. Well, I think that's all I have. I was going to delve into the list of questions that you yourself provided at the beginning of your sermon, uh, but alas, (laughs) I won't throw you any more of your own curveballs. Okay. Well, they're not actually, those questions are not actually too bad, except for the Enoch one, which I don't want to talk about. So we'll do a special podcast. That he was not? That he was not. I just, the answer is I don't know to that. So (laughs) actually that's pretty easy. Enoch was not. (laughs) All right. Well, um, I think that about does it for us today. Thank you for listening. Uh, If you want more information about our church, what we believe, what we're all about, you can visit our website at tracecrossing.org. We will see you next week.